Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Dirt Radio is broadcast live on unceded Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation. Welcome to Dirt Radio on 3CR with Jack and Sam. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Jack. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Recovered from Bring the Noise? Yeah, yeah, just about. Yeah, (laughs) there was a lot of running around. There was, yeah. It was, um, you know, kind of... Pretty active, which is always good. <laughs> Lots of fun. Yes. I think we did like 57 actions. Yeah, it was in total, that's a lot of actions, isn't it? Well, not us personally. No, I, know, I yeah. mean, we did 14 in SCAT, so thank you to everyone who donated. Yeah, we should have just told people that we did 57, <laughs> yeah. though. We did 57 actions. <laughs> um, so today we have Cam Walker on. We do. He's Dis- the campaigns coordinator of Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Yes, discussing all things election. So we'll pop Tam Cam through. Morning, Cam. Morning, Cam. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks, Sam. So, God, there's another election going on. Have you heard about it? You there, Cam Walker? (laughs) Yes, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) There's another election going on, a state election. You may have heard about it. I did hear something about it somewhere. (laughs) Oh, it's been a year of elections. It seems like a lifetime ago the federal election happened. Um, so tell us, Cam, what are, what are the main environmental issues that are on the agenda for this election for both sides of politics to consider? Yeah, so it's actually been a really interesting one because we know the federal election ended up being, you know, the climate election we needed last time and didn't get, and we actually got it this time. And, a, you know, a huge part of the emphasis with the federal election was climate and the coalition government's nine years of inaction on climate change and that that got us all those climate independence and it it gave Mm -hmm. the Greens the best uh, showing I think they've ever had and it got the federal ALP into power um, on a strong uh, agenda around climate action. So I think this one, no one really expected climate and environment to be enormous. Mm. State elections are often more about, you know, the domestic, the kind of cost of living stuff, um, housing, health, education, that sort of thing. So they do tend to be very bread and butter. But we did know it was going to have a really strong focus on COVID uh, and the lockdowns and how people have responded to that. And we knew it would also have a really strong focus on cost of living. And I guess cost of living is where the green groups have really kind of shoehorned their their way into the debate because um, you've got uh, the question of do you go into renewables and storage or do you go into further entrenched use of gas. So that's kind of been a really significant part of the debate. And another one which we can get to in a tick, of course, is the ongoing issue of native forest logging and whether parties will support an end to that logging. Yeah. So, Cam, obviously you were uh, very heavily involved in the fracking ban that we uh, secured here in Victoria with 
hundreds and hundreds of people in local communities uh, fighting for their for their food bowl and for their uh, farms. What what is going on with? We've talked about gas a lot, you know, during this show this year because obviously it's come up again in Victoria. What is the situation within the election narratives, I guess, around gas? Because it seems like the Victorian government, on the one hand, has said, well, you know, we, we're going to ban fracking and put it in the constitution. But on the other hand, my understanding is potentially that fracked gas could be coming into Victoria. Yes. So there's this big debate um, in the energy sector that we're going to face a shortfall in gas supply in one to two years' time, and particularly in the winter, which, of course, is when we're burning so much gas because a lot of it is used in that kind of residential sense of warming our houses using gas heaters. Mm. So leaving aside that kind of the import facility, um, which might contain frac gas, there was a strong campaign against um, a, a floating facility in Western Port Bay, the community one down there. Now there's a similar fight going in Geelong, mm. uh, which is ongoing. More at the domestic level, it's got really weird. Um, the ALP released a thing called the Gas Substitution Roadmap, which is a really interesting uh, kind of pathway that would allow the state to get off gas. It's it's um, not got really firm timelines, but it's starting to do things like talk about the concept of fossil gas rather than liquid natural gas, which is really good. But just in the last couple of days, the coalition have come out and said that um, they wanted, quote, turbocharged gas drilling in the state um, and that that's the only way that's going to bring our energy prices down and it's just such a ham-fisted intervention because we don't really use gas for electricity only in absolute peaking moments mm. it's not part of the normal mix of things and people are already getting off um, gas in their homes and gas in industry because it the cost can only go in one direction Bass Strait, where we normally get our gas from or have done for decades, it's in rapid decline. There really isn't that much onshore conventional gas and the unconventional gas, that is the gas you've got to frack for, is off limits according to the ban in the Constitution. So it's been a really weird intervention. Um, it's like Matthew Guy, the opposition leader, is talking about a, a gas-led recovery. And you probably remember when Scott Morrison <laughs> was talking about that yes. and it just sucked up a lot of money and it went absolutely nowhere and it was just a culture war waste of space. So it has been a pretty disappointing intervention in the last few days from the coalition. So we're now at a point where both the Victorian government and the opposition seem to be committed to pursuing gas beyond the election. Is that where we're at? Well, the ALP allows um, exploration of gas. There, there hasn't been new gas actually drilled, but they do allow it, and they have the gas substitution roadmap, whereas the coalition are actively pursuing as, as much as they can new offshore drilling. So there is a fair bit of daylight between their positions. Mm. Of course, the Greens and a number of the smaller progressive parties are saying, well, we just need to get off gas ASAP. So that's not the focus of the ALP, but they do have a process, which is the gas substitution process, which mm. is a pathway to get there. And of course, uh, Friends of the Earth, uh, No More Gas Collective, uh, just recently launched uh, our own roadmap of getting off gas. Um, I'm wondering if that's being put in front of politicians as we head into pre-polling and election time. Yes, it certainly has, and we've been getting uh, printed copies of, of that uh, 
document to candidates and to politicians, and it's a fantastic bit of work. You can find it on our website or just search Things the Earth Community Gas Retirement Roadmap. Um, Freya Leonard and others just put in an, an epic effort to um, get that document out the door, and it just mm. really clearly kind of unpacks, well, where do we use uh, gas at present and what are the alternatives and who owns the gas networks? Because, of course, as we know, uh, as we all struggle to pay our household electricity and energy bills, the gas companies and electricity companies are just price gouging like crazy. Mm. And all the gas distribution network uh, since the days of Kennet is privately owned. So it's just a money-making machine. And the quicker we can electrify and shift over to using electricity from renewable sources, the better it's going to be, certainly for the planet, but also for our hip pockets. There was also a, a, a little event on down in Brighton Beach with some of the Act On Climate people, um, and I note that Anna uh, Langford from the Act On Climate Collective mentioned in her speech down there that uh, we, that Victoria as a state has actually uh, done quite well over the last decade in reducing emissions just based on the pressure applied by movement and groups like Friends of the Earth and Community. Um, was that... Uh, ahead of what the Victorian government were stating publicly they thought they could reduce by? Yes, it actually ended up better than they expected. They had set targets and they've recently set targets for 2035, but the state has reduced greenhouse gas emissions by about 30% uh, against the year 2005, and that's actually pretty fantastic. Mm. A lot of that is because of the decline in the coal sector and the rise of renewables, and mm. next year we're going to have to work out, well, what's next? And the next biggest uh, wedge of emissions in Victoria is transport, mm. um, so we're going to really have to focus on that. But that's pretty fantastic, and as you say, that's due to community campaigning. You know, we campaign for the rebuild of the Climate Change Act, we campaign for emission reduction targets, we campaign for the Victorian Renewable Energy Target. And we campaign for offshore wind. And so those bits of policy are actually pointing Victoria in the right direction now in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Amazing. And I guess it also shows that, you know, there are often sort of criticisms of, uh, about targets not really um, meaning a lot. Uh, there's certainly been talk at the COP. I was just listening to uh, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now on the long drive into into the studio, and um, you know there, there's been a call from within this inside the uh, global South saying that actually um, they're not convinced that zero emissions uh, is going to bring about you know the kind of change that we need, and I guess that's talking on a justice level. Um, but it seems to me that there's also something to be said for when states and territories have set targets, it seems that they uh, quite consistently overshoot the target that they've put out, which, you know, is, is good for rapid change, I guess. Yeah. If you don't have a target, you don't know when you get to your destination. Yeah. So I think certainly at the state and territory level and at the federal level, yeah, it's really essential that we have targets because otherwise we just kind of coast along if we don't really know how far we've got to travel. Yeah. But I think the conversation from the global south is true in that there's this other conversation around net zero emissions, mm. which is the really worrying thing for the global south, which is where you use offsets mm. in order to say, oh, we've reduced our emissions. And of course, 
rich countries want to do all their offsetting in the global south, and that might mean destroying forests to put in plantations and displacing First Nations people or, or farmers and so on. So, yeah, there's a massive human rights dimension mm. to the whole concept of net zero. Yeah, and also a lot of pushback um, on Biden and America, I noted as well, of coming in around loss and damage and reparation for Global South because of the emissions put out. You know, I think it was like something like over 80% of past emissions were, you know, American or American militaries. But they want everybody to uh, be on the same level of having to uh, mitigate and adapt. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting conversation uh, for listeners out there. Maybe um, go have a look at Democracy Now!'s conversations with what's going on in Egypt at the moment. So, Cam, coming back to the state election, let's talk about forests. Uh, our little cute glider friends have had an enormous victory uh, recently, and it seems like there is, yeah, every day there is some news coming out around either illegal logging or uh, community groups pushing back and having wins in the courts around protecting uh, some of our endangered species and really precious forests, native forests. Where is it at in terms of is it registering on the election issue? I know Lily D'Ambrose was on radio talking about uh, the Vic Forest case with the Greater Glider, uh, but is it registering more broadly as an election issue? Look, I think it's starting to. I think earlier on it was much more around climate and energy, and if you kind of think about the last month or so, there's been a massive number of climate and energy announcements, particularly from the government and also from the Greens. The Greens did a big coal announcement on Sunday, and there's been, you know, battery and storage announcements mm. and emission reduction targets and just so much stuff. There's uh, Both the major parties have been big on support for both storage and solar on roofs, that sort of thing. Um, and forest is just coming into focus now, and there is a pretty strong campaign that's been coordinated through the Victorian Forest Alliance, particularly in those inner green ALP seats like Northcote, Brunswick, Richmond. And I feel like it really is getting on the agenda now. Um, it's interesting that the Greens have come out and said they would support an native forest logging by the end of next year. The government, uh, the ALP, has a target of ending logging by 2030. The coalition, the Liberal and Nationals, basically would overturn that. They just are saying we should just keep on logging forever. So, uh, you know, it's clear we've got a fair way to go in terms of convincing them. Mm. But the fact that all these community court or community-run court cases keep finding that Vic Forest is just not looking after threatened species is just a real wake-up call to the government that they just need to rein Vic Forest in. They're just not able to look after, or they're not willing to, for whatever reason, to look after threatened species. And their reputation is in tatters. They're, they're in embarrassment now, the fact that they're a government authority and they're managing our forests and they're doing such a bad job of it and they've consistently done such a bad job for such a long time mm. and we also know we're paying for that privilege of having our forests mismanaged because the taxpayers do provide a subsidy to Vic Forest. So I think all political parties must know that the current native forest industry is on the nose with the community, whether we can shift um, particularly the ALP any further decided the election really is down to the campaigning that's underway at present. Mm. I think we are going to take a quick 
service, community service announcement break. Cam, stay on the line. We'll be back to talk more. You're on Dirt Radio with Jack and Sam talking election, climate and environmental related issues with Cam Walker. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Dirt Radio on 3CR. I'm back to our interview with Cam Walker. Cam, if fig forests are gone, what can we do to manage our forests? Is it community? Is it First Nations? What's the best way to deal with it? So the first thing is we need to bring First Nations people to the table. Obviously, um, all the forested areas of Victoria, First Nation groups, traditional owner groups, have sustained their connection uh, to that country. And so we really need to bring them into the core of how we manage forests into the future. Um, There is this commitment to end native forest logging um, by the end of this decade. That's the the government uh, line, as I mentioned before. So the the forests that have been logged in recent decades won't be cut again. We're actually on the cusp of a really profound change in how we manage our forests for the next, you know, 100 years or so. So we need First Nations people to be at the core of the decision-making that happens. Um, But we also need to understand that climate change has changed the world in the last century and will continue to change the world. And so we're going to be facing a lot more wildfire conditions where bushfires, which are naturally occurring, will be worse and fire seasons will become longer and more intense. So that's something we also need to consider. And we need to find ways to really engage local communities in how these forests are managed as well. And just on the weekend, uh, Friends of the Earth organised the first um, of a a series of transformation conversations that was held up in uh, the the north side of the Central Highlands. Um, And it was just to get people around the table to start thinking about, well, where will our timber come from if we don't want mega plantations, if we want more sustainable agroforestry and small-scale forestry on private land, what might that look like and what are the opportunities for local communities? So I think that's really the path we've got to go down now. We have been stuck in almost 40 years of conflict between, in simple terms, you know, loggers and greenies, and we need to move beyond that now and find ways to really collaborate to prepare for um, the next century and how we manage the forest in a time of uh, ever, ever worsening climate change. So, Cam, that also raises the question for me, is the current state government, I mean, do they have a plan? Do they, if they're talking about ending it by 2030, how how have they approached what the future management of forests looks like? At this point, they're quite focused on the transition. So there's a lot of money for workers and businesses, and that's been the focus of the work they're doing. And you're probably familiar with the Latrobe Valley Authority 
city down in, in Gippsland, mm-hmm. which has kind of been tasked with managing a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of money also for plantation, but of course we know plantations take 30 to 40 years to mm-hmm. grow, uh, but we already have a lot of plantations, but a lot of them are in Western Vic, and so it's about, well, how do we bring those trees instead of sending them overseas um, Possibly, uh, often as pulp, how do we get them to Gippsland, which is where a lot of the workers are at present in that industry. But then we haven't had the conversation, and there really isn't a plan yet for restoration forestry. You know, Mm -hmm. how do we bring these forests that have been hammered by bushfires and hammered by salvage logging and hammered by regular logging, how do we bring them back into ecological health? And, uh, you know, that's really the conversation and that's the hard work we're going to be having to go through in the next couple of decades. Yeah. On top of also dealing, as you said, with increasing climate change issues. Uh, And, of course, there, you know, a logical thing is the contractors that currently work in the timber industry, we need to be employing them to be working on fires in Mm. summer, so same-sector jobs. There's a lot of really good detail in there about same-sector jobs for people currently in the timber industry. Yeah, and it also, uh, you know, raises another focus that Friends of the Earth at our national meeting recently talked about, and that is you know, people that are in the environmental movement uh, fighting for climate justice are also increasingly being pulled into mutual aid and support for communities. Uh, You know, we've had the fires, we've had endless floods, uh, and, of course, uh, only in the last month we've seen that uh, encroach into inner-city suburbs such as Maribyrnong and around Flemington with uh, the whole levee wall and, and the race course uh, pushing water into suburban areas. Can you talk through a little bit, Cam, about, you know, what we were, um, I guess, establishing and discussing at the, at the national meeting around, uh, you know, a future part of our organising and activism is going to have to be centred in mutual aid? Yeah, for sure. So if we as a global community stopped all greenhouse gas emissions this afternoon, you know, we're still locked into at least a century of global warming because the amount of carbon we've put into the atmosphere over the last century and a half. So we need to keep doing the mitigation campaigning, the reducing Mm -hmm. emissions and and doing the transition to renewables. But we also need to do more what sometimes is called adaptation work, but but resilience building. And we know that more and more the communities we work with, they're being impacted by storm surge, by bushfire, by floods, by droughts and so on. And there's lots of formal entities, emergency services, you know, fire authorities and the state emergency service. We're not, you know, we're not the same as them. They're different <laughs> and they've got a significant role. But we think there's a role for more and more grassroots organisations to get into the mix of immediate disaster re- relief and recovery and there's a growing number of these kind of grassroots decentralized community-based mutual aid networks Um, it's really heartening to see right across the country Um, so we thought we'd just do our little bit and create a mutual aid network so that our members and supporters can in times of disaster help with cleanup and help with sandbagging and help with fire relief and do all that sort of work you know, on a really low scale, but in a way that's real mm. and that's based on, you know, deepening the, the relationships we already have with communities around the state and around the country. 
Yeah, and I think it's um, it's really interesting. I know Daryl Taylor has done a lot of sort of interesting research and in looking at how communities organise and respond together in the immediate aftermath of some sort of uh, disaster, particularly, you know, climate-related disasters. And I guess what the fires and the floods have shown is, you know, despite whatever best laid plans, government authorities and, you know, formalised um, rescue services may have, every time something happens, it's just... Yeah, the shit hits the fan, so to speak, and uh, local communities are uh, there helping each other always. Um, and this seems to be something that is going to happen increasingly. Uh, I, I'm also wondering, do you know, Cam, because I know you're also involved in firefighting, you know, one of the big problems with the, the fires that happened last time was the absolute cut of communications for people like in Malakuda. Uh, that were isolated and also all the communication systems go went down. Um, have you heard of any mutual aid or any kind of work being done within communities uh, to mitigate that kind of dropout that happens during disasters? Yeah, so the communications aspect is, you know, more the companies and the governments, but there is more and more growing networks of shortwave radios so kind of, you know, uh, Old school. radio enthusiasts, that's been a big thing in Northern Rivers region of New South Wales with the flooding, mm. where the phone towers went down. And then we've seen some really exciting community resilience around local grids, electricity grids, because, say, in Malakuta, where the power went off, now there's a move to basically create a microgrid where they've got... Um, energy stored in the town so they're no longer in trouble um, if the power line, the external power lines go down uh, in, in fire events where you've got trees falling across lines. So mm. there's a, a phenomenal amount of stuff that's out there that is community-driven. And I guess, you know, the job really is how do we really coordinate all that? Because community groups know what's happening in their patch and they know, you know, who the people are and they know where the strength of the networks are. Big emergency services coming in can't be expected to understand local communities. Yes. So we've got to, you know, really find ways to connect those government-funded emergency service entities and the big NGOs and how they can talk to and work with and support those really great localised community resilience networks that are forming. Amazing conversation. I am going to have to pick your brain at the pub. More on that, Cam Walker. Uh, I've always said radio will be the communication form that survives <laughs> <laughs> all other things. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Cam, for joining us this morning. Fascinating conversation and really look forward to seeing where all of these issues play out uh, across the communities as we go to vote. Yes, indeed. Let's hope that uh, Saturday week we're all feeling pretty cheerful about how it's played out. <laughs> yes, and I do believe for uh, members and friends of the Earth people there will be um, an election watch party going on at HQ. Yes, we also might see some of you there. Excellent. Thanks, Cam. Thanks, Cam. Bye. Bye. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, 
diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Dirt Radio on 3CR. Sam, elevate a pitch, bring the noise, donations, 30 seconds, go. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jackie always put me on the spot. Yeah, it's just uh, to keep you, please keep you sharp. go to melbournefo.org.au or go to Bring the Noise Raisley. You can also find it on our Facebook page. Uh, we were raising funds for Friends of the Earth to keep the lights on, the rent paid. Uh, it's been a hard couple of years, and we went out and exercised our action muscles to raise awareness around all the corporate and climate criminals. If you like our work and you want to see us keep on going, please donate now, today, before it shuts. Very good. And while you're at it and online, maybe go to 3cr.org.au and also donate to 3CR. You'll find Dirt Radio on there. You could donate directly to our show. Yes. I mean, I think if you look at previous episodes, we have links to bring the noise in there. I think Listen to we all do. the conversations. Yeah, fully. And jump on our Facebook page and check out all the amazing photos. It's also on Instagram under Phone Melbourne. You will see us doing parkour. Some of us dressed as buses, like Elise doing parkour, which was very impressive. (laughs) Mad skills for running away from bad people. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Good skills to have. Very good skills to have. So we're about out of time. We are. Next week we will be one show out from the state election. Yes. Uh, Get out there and vote, people, for the future that you want. Absolutely. Mm. suppose you have a bit of agency in that. Yes. Get involved. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Jack. We've been Dirt Radio and we'll see you this time next Tuesday. Boom.